Hi there, welcome to the Uxta Podcast for part two of my interview with Jim Biloff, who was very gracious with his time, and so much so that I've decided to break up that interview into two parts. If you haven't heard part one, you'll want to go back and listen to it, and if you have listened to part one, here's part two. Speaking about uh, recordings real quick, uh, The Legends of Ukulele with Rhino, is that still available and out there? Well, again, no, it's no, absolutely okay. not. It was uh, it, it, it was a limited edition and they made just so many and that was the end of it. That doesn't mean you can't find it. Again, if you go to eBay, you'll, you, you can find copies of it, but it's, you know, it's out of print completely. I was just like looking at Apple Music to see, you know, because a lot of times they'll make things like collections available and I couldn't find it. Um, this is probably a good spot for you to just mention about your Spotify playlist for the book. This is probably yeah. in right there. Oh yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, you know, here's, you know, here is, uh, can you see this? Yeah. Yes. Here's the book. And, um, and in it, of course, I end up talking about just dozens and dozens and dozens of pieces of music, either mine or other people's music that moved me and that were, were part of, part of these adventures. I mean, for example, uh, my discovery of Lyle Ritz was a turning point. Um, hearing just the very opening track of how about, of his album, How About You, and the song was Don't Get Around Much Anymore. I mean, by the time that song was over, I had, I had come to the conclusion that, that everything I had ever thought about the ukulele was wrong. <laughs> I, I had no idea that, that that you could take this instrument where Lyle had taken it in the late 1950s um, on this album. And so it changed my entire, you know, uh, it sort of, it, it, it changed the goal, the, the goalposts moved dramatically. I thought, my God, this is, this instrument has, has so many more dimensions to it now, having just listened to this one song. So... So uh, that's a that's a long way of saying that <laughs> that song is on the Spotify playlist too. So you can hear Lyle Rich and all of the music that I mentioned throughout the book is all the concertos are on the Spotify playlist and um, George Harrison's story that I talk about. I included a song I think from uh, from George's album and so all of those all of all of those little. Um, the, those little alleyways and all the various music mentions where I could, I included it on this playlist. You know, in a very similar with Lyle Ritz, um, after reading your book, long story short, historically Bach was completely forgotten about other than as a piano like tutorial book. And then Mendelssohn came along and said, this is pretty good stuff. And today we think of Bach as this mega, you know, influence. Really forgotten, Right. Right. Lyle was nearly forgotten, except for in Hawaii, you mentioned. So you kind of helped bring him back. But how crazy is it that he had to subside as a bassist, you know? And now he made a good living doing it, right? You know, paying for, for life as a bassist. But had to, like, leave that ukulele, basically, for a long period of his life. I mean, he kept playing it. But, you know, another instrument became his focus. Just... Those are things that you read and you're like, what? You know, it just because we think of him in such a revered way today, you know, right. in the ukulele world. So it's, it's again, hard to believe that he is kind of, eh, you know, except for in Hawaii where they they thought he was, a, you know, which makes sense because he, well, he really he, was. Yeah, although there's a little bit of a nuance there because 
because Lyle wasn't just a bass player. It wasn't, he wasn't just sort of a working bass player. He was, but, but he was also, you know, one of the bass players of the Wrecking Crew. I mean, he's, the, he's playing acoustic bass on uh, Good Vibrations. He played on some extraordinary, you know, pop recordings. You know, it's on the Righteous Brothers. You know, you've lost that love and feeling. Yeah. Boom. You know, I mean, that's that's Lyle on bass there. Um, so, so I think that throughout his Wrecking Crew days, he was digging it. It was that was <laughs> that was one of the coolest gigs to have uh, for a studio musician was to be part of the Wrecking Crew. Now, I want to ask you some education questions real quick, and you, you can go deeper or narrow or even say nah, whatever. But the first question is, um, did you ever consider a classroom method? Because you do have the ukulele tips and tunes. Did you ever consider making something for the classroom? Or is it just because at the time, I mean, the ukulele in classrooms is like only, well, I mean, you've got Doan method in Canada that goes back to the 50s and 60s, well, 60s for sure. But in the United States, the ukulele in the classroom, other than Hawaii, and even there I hear, is in the past 15 years. So did you ever consider a classroom method? No, not okay. once. All right. Second second question. That makes a quick, a quick answer. Um, you settled on C tuning by 1994, whereas in your earlier books, you published the tunings as they are originally published mm -hmm. and let people just deal with the different chord shapes and just playing the different chords. Um, do you run into a lot of people that prefer the detuning that basically, you know, it's, I hear the strong places for that are Canada and perhaps some places in England, perhaps that really rely on detuning. Do you run into that a lot? Do you get a lot of feedback from that or not much at all? In the early days, uh, you know, uh, and yes, you're right. It was, it was especially in Canada. And I think that that was the Doan influence, if I'm not mistaken. It's been a while, but um, I think that, that, I think that he found that the detuning I could be wrong about this, and if so, I apologize. Was maybe a better a better teaching key? I could be wrong about that. I think also that that Chalmers, uh, again, he was using the, the the ukulele mostly as a teaching device. I yep. think that he didn't do reentrant for that reason as well. Yes, um, but. And I, again, I apologize if I'm wrong about that. My understanding about the detuning uh, mostly is that it was favored by vaudeville artists, in particular artists like Roy Smeck. And, and, and the reason that I always bought into was that you're dealing sort of at a time where, where electronics is, is either new or non-existent. And so if you were a vaudeville artist, you had to fill an auditorium with a with a very small instrument. And so by taking the uke up just one whole step, um, it makes it brighter and probably easier to hear. And so Smack was always playing in the key of D. And so, uh, you know, so that was part of it. And yes, when we, when we bought this stack of out of print songbooks at the very beginning, um, they came in every possible, I mean, literally song to song to song within a songbook, you were getting a variety of different tunings. I'm not quite sure at the time what they expected the player to do. Was it literally to, oh, now I have to do, <laughs> change it and go, you know, either up to the key of, of D or go down to, to some other key. Um, but it, 
you know, in retrospect, it's kind of crazy that, that, you know, to have a songbook that is featuring songs in a variety of tunings. Um, and I didn't know better at the time. So that first, you know, I sort of wince when I think about that first book, which is still in print and still sells. Um, but right after that book came out, then I think that we, we did have a trip to Hawaii uh, somewhere around 92, 93. And that's where I learned that, that Hawaii at least had settled for the most part on the key of C. And so I came away from that thinking, you know what, if Hawaii is comfortable with the, with the key of C, then I am comfortable with the key of C. And so, you know, at the time it didn't seem like that big a deal. I just decided to do it. But, but I guess it turned out to be at least, you know, part of, of a movement towards a standardized tuning because prior to that, it was pretty all over the map. Yeah. I, I traced, method books all the way back down to 1910 ernest i think was the first right and that's in c tuning and then it's not too much later once tin pan alley gets a hold of stuff that it you see a lot more stuff in the d tuning yeah you know um there's also a website out there i'm not sure how legal it is the guys in canada that sells a collection of scanned vintage music and it's thousands of songs that he he just, you know, he just covering his cost of like shipping and the, the materials. I think it's now on USB sticks that he sells it on, uh, the, like the vintage uke or something on the website. But that, that kind of fascinates me. Um, now, you don't really consider yourself a teacher. You really don't. You do. You do teaching, but you don't really consider yourself that. But you've had a couple pretty famous students. Um, is it Sam O'Neill? Oh, Sam Neill. Sam Neill. And then also Bette Midler. Yeah. As as students. Now, my question for you isn't, well, I mean, one is, what are they like? But on the side of that, how do you teach them? What what does that look like? What's your process with them? Without going super detailed, what what do you do? So those, those are kind of my questions about the, the teaching. You know, I mean, I, you know, when I think of myself as a think about teaching, I've been giving workshops forever. For 30 years, I've been giving workshops, mostly at UCFest, but also at music stores. And so I can't tell you, I mean, it's probably thousands of workshops. And so, you know, um, you know, eventually, you know, it, what is it? The, you know, it's, you know, somebody said it's, you know, what, 10,000 hours or something and you get good at something. So I, yes. I put myself in that category. Eventually I got <laughs> good at it. And, um, and, you know, I put, you know, I still feel like my advanced beginner workshop is, is pretty good. And uh, I even did a, a DVD of that called Jumpin' Jim's Ukulele Workshop. And um, I still think, I still think it, it holds. But one of the, one of the big, um, one of the big revelations for me in teaching, and you mentioned it before we started to record, was that I realized that virtually everybody in a workshop um, played their G with their index, middle, and ring finger. And I knew that because that's how they'd learned it from the books. And in fact, even our Tips and Tunes book told you to make it that way. And I thought that was really interesting because at some point I had made, uh, unconsciously probably, I'm, I'm sure, not probably, definitely, I had unconsciously um, decided that it was smarter to make it with my middle ring and pinky. And so this is a long way of getting around to Bette Midler and Sam Neill. But, but these are a few of the things that I had observed over time and, and realized that finger placement, you know, that, that especially beginners or new players can put too much emphasis 
on learning how to make chords with certain fingers. And so I felt it my duty, my responsibility over time to break people of that habit. Not so much that, you know, it's all about the G chord or it's all about this chord. It's really to loosen people up about what fingers you use because ultimately it's not about making this discrete chord. It's really about thinking about chords within um, within a song and, and and the movement between chords. And so if you think, for example, as I did, that a lot of the songs I like to play, these sort of Tin Pan Alley songs, oftentimes you would go from the major to the seven. Um, uh, you know, what? let's say when you're going into like, you know, hey, good looking, when you're going into the bridge, and if you're in the key of C, you go from C to C7, which has a very distinct sound and feeling, and then you go to the bridge, which starts in F, right? And so it seemed to me that if, you know, if that happens a lot, then you're oftentimes going to be going from a G chord to a G7, and if you're going to make it with your first three fingers, then you have to lift all three of them. Why not just lift your pinky and put down your index? And so from that little observation, um, you know, I also realized that we all learned to make the C chord, the easiest chord of them all, with our ring finger. And then one day I, I, I'm looking down at my hand and I realize I'm not using my ring finger, I'm using my pinky. And so, and so I like to say that my hand had overruled my head. And so I realized, well, why did it do that? I mean, if I didn't consciously make this decision, why, why did my hand put my pinky there? And it dawned on me that the reason is, is again, it's not a discrete chord. We're, we're in motion here. And so if you play your C with your pinky, then you have three fingers to go to the next chord as opposed to two fingers if you're making it with your ring finger. And so those were those observations I thought were worthy to share with others. And so getting back to Bette Midler, Probably, you know, I shared a little bit of that, but mostly, you know, when it comes to this instrument, it's mostly just sort of beating down whatever fear you have about learning a musical instrument. And the one thing that I learned early on was to teach people how to play a song in one minute. I made it sort of a, a thing when we were at events. Um, you know, someone would eventually, you know, early, especially early on, they'd come up, eh, that's cute. And then they tell you, you know, they see your books, they see your ukes, and they say, well, that's fun. And then, you know, you know, you've met these people before, I'm sure, Chris, these people who say, I don't have a musical bone in my body, yep. you know, you know, and then they have the jokes, like, the only thing I can play is the radio, <laughs> and that sort of stuff. And I would say, well, that's interesting. And, I, and then I would say, well, what if I could teach you to play a song in one minute? And most people say, all right, you know, fine. So then I would teach them to play, he's got the whole world in his hands with, with the one finger making the C and then the three fingers, the triangle making the G7. And I could do that in one minute. And I loved watching, I loved thinking that all of these, all of these defenses in somebody's head that had been sort of, you know, you know, that had been manifest over decades that, you know, I can't, I'm not musical. I can never play a musical instrument. In one minute, you begin to see the unraveling of all of that. And then the next thing out of their mouths often was, well, how much is one of these things? <laughs> right. And so you could literally undo somebody's, 
somebody's, you know, decades of convincing in one minute. And so that really was it. And so, you know, you start with a C and a G7 and, you know, you give them a few other pointers and mostly it's about confidence, right? And so, oh, well, I did that and I did that. And well, if that's it, then that's not too hard. And then they're off. Now, did Bet have any previous guitar experience or anything to fall back on? I think that she had tried the, you know, she had tried the piano like so many of us. I tried the piano. And yep. I just had a hard time with it. And and so she had a hard time with it. And then I think she tried the guitar. And I, I, I my understanding was that that didn't really take. And then finally, when when, you know, her people contacted me, you know, and I finally met her, it was sort of like, damn it, you know, I'm from Hawaii, I should be able to play this instrument. And so I think I gave her three or four lessons and, and she was off and running. And it was, a, it was, it was, a, I tell the story about how, and it really is a, it is a wonderful story. The last lesson I came, I came over to her house and uh, she said, listen to this. And so uh, right at the beginning, she starts to sing, um, with a little help from my friends, the Beatles song. And, and she's, 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 she's making the chords and, and, and she's singing the song. And so of course my first thought is, wow, I'm getting a, a, a private concert from Bette Midler and she's singing, you know, with a little help from my friends. But, but more than that, it dawned on me that I was watching something that I had experienced and that we all have experienced. And that is that moment that first moment that is pretty indelible in my mind. I still remember this. And I bet you a lot of the people that watch your show, and you might even remember this, that that first time when you began to have enough facility that you could play chords in a row with in some kind of tempo and then sing above those chords and there is this realization that you are actually making music. And I remember the very first song, I must've been about, I don't know, 14 or 13 when I started on the guitar and it was the Peter, Paul and Mary song, 500 miles. Yep. I remember 500 miles, 500 miles. And I thought, oh my God, it was, it was really a sort of a like, it was memorable enough that I still remember it. And she was, and I was watching her have that moment. And I thought, this is universal. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't, this is the same experience we all have, the joy of making our own music. There's that portable radio, right? The, the idea. A um, couple of real quick questions about the Yellow Book and things. First of all, do you have any, when I watched you teach out of the Yellow Book at, the LA music or LA ukulele festival. Uh, your strategy is much like they use in the twin cities where you just recently were as well. I had a chance to see you teaching, um, which is great. Um, I still need to buy the Lyle light book. Incidentally, that's one of the, I still have to buy. Um, but you go over the chords first, you take a look at all the chords that are there and then you go in and, and you just sort of roadmap what the song is going to do. And then you play. Do you have any other, tips and tricks for people leading a youth group following the yellow book or blue book of what can facilitate that process any better? Or is that pretty much a good summary? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a perfectly fine summary. You know, one thing with the, both of the books is that we, uh, is that we, 
we, we established yet another rule when it came to the daily ukulele books, which is that you would never have to turn a page. Hmm. So um, I never, because, you know, what could be more annoying than, especially with 50 people, you know, having to turn the page for the rest of the song. So, so, so yet again on the Venn diagram, it not only had to be in a great, you know, vocal range, it had to be in a good uke key, but it also had to be containable within two pages. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where, um, that's where I became, you know, um, you know, I, I kind of learned, especially from um, uh, my longtime editor, Ronnie Schiff, and then our engraver, Charlu, how to do what we call road mapping, which is, which is, you know, basically learning how to take repeated sections and run them underneath each other. And in that way, you, you use less space so that we can sometimes take songs that have multiple sections and be able to kind of squeeze them into a, into a two-page um, spread at, at the most. And so one of the things that I do find myself doing when I have daily ukulele jams is before we go into it to just sort of talk through what we call the roadmap. So in other words, you're going to go you know, the first verse, you're going to go to the bridge, then you're going to go back to the top, then you're going to drop down to the coda, that sort of stuff. Another similar question, uh, Yellow Book, Blue Book, or any other arrangement, left-handers, you mentioned Ian Whitcomb and his influence. Um, I can tell you mine real quickly. I let students choose whether they're going to play righty, lefty, or just flip it. Right. Um, there's some people that get very angry at me about that. Mm -hmm. um, for giving them that choice because goodness knows we don't have left-handed trumpets and we don't have left-handed trombones. We don't have left-handed violins. So why should we have left-handed ukuleles? Right. But I, I don't subscribe to that. How do you handle left-handers or what advice do you give left-handers? You know, the other instrument that I often refer to when this comes up is the piano, right? I mean, it's not like there's a left-handed piano, right? <laughs> and if you think about it, I mean, the way, the way actually that I've, 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 I've uh, I've considered this is that in some ways, right-handed people um, are using their dominant hand to to often do the least remarkable work, right? Right. I mean, especially when you're starting out, we're basically asking our dominant hand to just go up and down, <laughs> right? The hard stuff is the left hand. We're moving all around. Uh, with all these different chords. So in some ways, you could look at it and say, gee, if you're a lefty, you could be, <laughs> you, you could really um, have sort of an advantage um, because you have all of this control on this side, whereas we, you know, mostly have our, our, our greatest dominance is, is on our strumming hand. Now, that can only go so far. Um, and I don't have a strong opinion on it either way, whatever works, but I have seen all sorts of things. Ian, of course, um, turned the, you know, rather, you know, there is a downside to being a lefty, which is that if, if you can only play left-handed and if you come into a situation where they're only right-handed ukes, you're kind of out of luck. So for Ian, when he would come to anybody's house, he'd just take your uke and flip it around. Um, and then of course there are, I have met plenty of lefties who just play right-handed. It's not a big deal. And, and and in that case, then I think of the piano, which is left-handed or right-handed. You're asking your hands oftentimes to do equally complicated things. I'm going to ask you three instrument-related questions. 
And one other question, and I'll get you out of here because you've been so kind with your time tonight. I, I appreciate it. Um, the first question is, you, you had conversations with Martin and nothing ever came about. Um, did they not want to ever create a Jumpin' Jim's version of a Martin of some kind or just that never happened? I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I never had that conversation with them and it wasn't really top of mind. Um, no, mostly my conversations with Chris Martin in the early days were, you know, I think there's something happening here. Now this is in the, you know, this is in the nineties, right? Um, you know, we'd started to publish some songbooks. I even, I think what in 97, my history book comes out. So things are really starting, I think to happen. And there's some articles coming out. And I, I remember introducing myself to him at, uh, at the NAM trade show and he was perfectly lovely and polite. And, and of course had a warm, you know, had warm feelings towards the instrument because it had been so critical to the success of, of Martin, you know, at a very difficult time, uh, you know, way back. Uh, but um, no, I think he was enough of a businessman and his nose told him that it, there just wasn't enough there, especially for a Martin, which, you know, you know, they're not just knocking instruments out. They're making really, really fine fine instruments, but you know, it wasn't long before they started, they put their toe in the water. Um, I think it was called the SO uke, um, that, a, a relatively inexpensive uke that they started to import. And then of course, now they're fully into it. But you know, that was all part of the struggle. Um, and you know, without struggle, you know, oftentimes have a story or an adventure. And so, uh, so anyway, and, and I was, I have to say, getting uh, Chris Martin's quote in, in the book, um, I, I did get some wonderful, wonderful blurbs from some wonderful people. Yes, but getting, But, but I, I have to tell you that getting the one from Chris Martin was, was, uh, was especially meaningful. Now, Martin passing up on any sort of business thing led to the magic fluke. Um, is there anything you want to just mention quickly about the the match? I mean, it has a reputation all of its own in the ukulele world. Um, at one point, it was a very affordable ukulele. I'd say that that thanks to inflation and being made in America, and also Chinese imports now left and right, it no longer has that reputation of being an inexpensive. Now, it's not uber expensive, but it's also not inexpensive anymore. But it has this reputation of being just a super playable good sounding rugged uke is there anything else you'd like to add about the magic fluke at all while i've got you on well there's so much to say i mean it, it is it, it is you know my brother-in-law dale webb um is and my sister are completely intertwined in our in our story and that was another reason why i wanted to to write this book because i wanted i wanted to tip my hat to to them and to everyone else that we've partnered with throughout the years. Um, but yes, I mean, he, you know, he was the perfect guy. He, he had, um, he had experience with molding and he was a very experienced woodworker and, um, you know, and, and he saw Liz and I sort of starting out tentatively publishing these songbooks and sort of feeling our way. And, and then, you know, he would hear me periodically say, you know, it's, you know, one of the challenges with this, this early, you know, effort to, 
to build some steam for the instrument that we were hitting we were hitting a wall because it, it wasn't easy to get instruments right you go to a store a music store in those days in the early days and either they had none or they had some imports that were just really unplayable um, and then you know the only good ones were really coming from let's say a Kamaka at the time and Kamaka would pretty much sold everything they made to the Hawaiian market so uh, so I said there really is a need for something like this and so in his own very quiet way he started to fiddle um, and uh, and ultimately came up with with the fluke and the rest, as they say, is history. Do you think that if you had um, been able to get the molds for the Maca Fairies that you might have gone into business that direction? It's anything is possible. It was, we were sort of reaching for, we, we were, we were grasping at straws, so to speak, you know, thinking about how can we do this um, you know, and, and get sort of, you know, go from zero to 60 really fast. And we thought, and, 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 and I had no experience in manufacturing, but Dale did. And so when we went to see Maria McAfee, and I write about that too. Yes. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, and she was so wonderful, you know, and she's, you know, it was, it was very clear that chasing those molds was, was a dead end. Either, either they had been melted down or 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 something but anyway it was not an option um and so you know we learned pretty quickly that 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 wasn't that wasn't a direction we were going to go in now in your personal collection i know you still have some macafaries in it that that you find fondly but you said that your your collecting days are over um what i mean i know your magic fluke is a regular player for you oh yeah i know you have a, a martin at least that you keep playing where how much of your time do you spend on those instruments and what would you say are your favorite instruments today just as a quick summary oh yeah just uh, that i do have a couple of you know standout collectibles um but but for for the most part i love and still love the goofy novelty ones so it's <laughs> the betty boops and the cheerleaders and and so you know the la dominoes all of those and so you, you know, when you come to our house, that's that's what I have on display because those are the ones that just charm, still charm me. And and I know my collecting days are pretty much over, but, but were I to find yet another, uh, you know, some some novelty one that I don't have, um, I'd I'd probably uh, I'd probably jump on it. So now, um, talking about the history of the ukulele really quickly, you talk about is it Madeira? Is that how you say it? Yeah, Madeira, right. Um, Madeira, you talk about a distinction between the machete and the bragina. What do you want to clarify that? Because I, I had always thought that they were interchangeable. Apparently, they're not. Do, do you want to address that real quick? Um, you know what I'd rather do is address. But <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think that um, I'm I'm probably not equipped to to give you a, a good a good clear answer on the difference between the machete and the Bruguinha. Um, okay. But, okay. but what I can do is explain the difference between the machete, which was a four stringed instrument, but the tuning wasn't quite like, um, like the, or wasn't even terribly close to the ukulele, uh, the original ukulele tuning and the Rajao, which was a five stringed instrument and that 
that had the My Dog Has Fleas with an additional string. And so I think that what we've, well, and this is really mostly thanks to the, it's almost entirely thanks to the research of John King and Jim Tranquata. And I tip my hat to them and their book on the history of the instrument. They, they did this extraordinary research. And in fact, John, I write about this. John King really helped me with the, with the second edition of my history book. And he kind of sorted this out for me, which is just that the Rajao, the five-stringed instrument, has as much to do with the modern-day ukulele as the machete does, maybe more, because that's really where the tuning came from. And the and size what more came from the machete, right? The size of it more came from the machete? Maybe, yes. So, yeah. right. so the size is more the machete and the tuning is more from the Rajao. And when we went to Madeira a few years ago, we, we of course, went looking for music and we heard a band of, of, uh, of folk singers and there they were all playing Rajaos. And I'm watching them. So they're all five stringed instruments and I'm watching their fingers and they're making all the, the standard chord the chord fingerings that you know. And, and, so, and so eventually they invited me to play along with them. And it took me, you know, 30 seconds to figure out what the other string did. And, 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 and it was, you know, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I dug it and I, and I understood. I, I saw how this five stringed instrument could have morphed into this four stringed ukulele. The other, the other thing that's really blown my mind recently is the Ukulele Friend website has this ukulele that they call the first ukulele that they date to 1879. Uh -huh. And all the books that I'd read, it said that it had been like a five-year period of time or so after they arrived in Hawaii before they started making this new instrument. Uh -huh. But it sure sounds like they started making them almost immediately out of what they had available hmm. um, with the date of that one. So it's it's pretty cool. That's on the web. So if anybody wants to look up the ukulele website, he's got like a, a museum online that you can look at. And I would I would love to see that someday too. I, by the way, if we if we ever end up in in where you're at, and I think you're in Massachusetts, right? Is that where you're at now, or is it Connecticut? Connecticut. If I ever get out there, a cup of coffee or the adult beverage is on me. Just so you know, um, if we ever do it. Um, the the final question really is this: is when it comes to all your books and all your projects, what are you most proud of today? What what do you look back as your lifetime achievement? Well, you know, it, it, there are a lot of different, as you say, uh, the, as you said in the beginning, there are a lot of different chapters. The history book was pretty much the first one that had ever come out. And I was very thankful to be able to put that information in one place. And also to, and also the, a, a big tip of the hat to the art director on that book, Tommy Steele and, and also Andy Angle, who made it look so fun because I wanted to include all of these pictures of vintage ukes and memorabilia and ephemera. Um, and, um, and then of course, Writing the the two ukulele concertos was a an extraordinary experience, and being able to perform um, the the first one, you can't be serious with the original orchestra that um, commissioned it, the Wallingford Symphony here in Connecticut, and then the Michigan Philharmonic, and then being able to do it with a few different high school orchestras. It's been a thrill and a half. Um, and writing this new book has been very deeply meaningful to me. But I, I think that the thing that um, that touches me the most, honestly, after all is said and done, is uh, is the Lyle Ritz books. Um, I I I have a very you know deep 
you know, I've, I have very strong feelings for, for Lyle. He was a very special guy. And, and I know uh, he got, you know, a number of people got to know him pretty well. Very humble, very funny, dry sense of humor, but, um, but not a natural marketing guy, not a, not very promotionally oriented. And at least for me, it, he was, and his work was what lit, lit me up. And so without my discovering how about you, none of this would have happened. So hearing how about you changed everything and then getting to know him and then encouraging him to, to arrange songs um, and, and then having him do it so beautifully. I hope that those books in particular just live on for a long, long time um, because he wouldn't have done it on his own. It would not have happened. And he had a particular, um, and this, we could talk about this forever, but because he was a bass player, I, I have a theory about bass players who play the, the ukulele, which is that because the uke has no bass, if you understand root movement, it gives you a leg up over somebody else. And so his ability to hear chords, because in his mind, he's imagining the bass part, gives him some kind of special power. And so I feel like his arrangements in all three books are, are special because not only who he was um, and his aesthetics and the way he kind of liked music and the chords he liked, but also because he had this, this bass skill. Um, and so I would say at the end of the day, I look at those three books and, and I smile a lot. And also we did two albums with Lyle. One was the live record with Herb Oda that, um, that I was very, very thankful to be able to put out to capture the two of them playing jazz tunes in a club. And then, and then Lyle's studio record that he did for us called No Frills, where he did the uke. He did it all on, a, on, an, on an Apple, uh, on an iMac. Um, he, he, did, he laid in all the uke parts uh, in GarageBand, and then he laid in the bass parts. And, and he felt that that record was, he was most more satisfied with, with No Frills than any other record he'd ever made. And, and that in turn made me very happy that I could, I could help him realize an album that he, cause he was very fussy and he was very self-critical, very self-critical. And so t for him to be able to say, yeah, I think I did a pretty good job on that meant a great deal to me. If somebody would want to play your concertos, how would they get the music for that? Is it available uh, anywhere? I would love that because I'm the only one that's ever played it. And so finally, a couple of years ago, Tony Mizen, who's done three uh, classical books for me, he helped me um, uh, notate it. And so now anybody who's interested, um, I have them available. And, uh, and so the entire, all the music for the orchestra, of course, is all notated and available. But I, the one thing I had never done was to do all the, the musical notation and tabbing of the uke parts. And that's now done and available. So, so if anyone wants to perform it with an orchestra or a string quartet, let me know. Well, I'm, I'm going to be contacting you about that because I, I would like to learn that. My, I would like to take a look at it myself, you know, and, and watch it as it goes and maybe learn it. Um, do you have any other music books or books in the works at this point um, that's coming up next? No. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't mean that we're, we're, we're not thinking about it. But at the moment, 
No. Um, this has been, this Utopia has been sort of a three-year project and I'm, I'm really happy that it's finally out and, and I'll probably do what I can uh, in my own limited way to promote it and, and get it out there. And, uh, and as far as songbooks are concerned, it's not as if we're, we're not, we're not open to the idea, but it just, it just seems as if it's pretty much been done. And I'm not sure that there are many empty, uh, empty slots, um, which is a great thing. And so this is really, these are, this is a golden era for people who want to play virtually anything on the instrument. Of course, they've got YouTube, so they, they don't necessarily need books, but I also feel like we've, uh, especially with the, you know, with the, the Lyle Ritz books, with the classical books, uh, Fred Sokolow did a blues book and a bluegrass book for us and things like that. Um, those are, those are terrific resources for people who want to expand um, into other genres. And then of course, yes, I'm very thankful that the daily ukuleles have been um, still, you know, uh, still as popular as they are, you know, especially with, uh, with groups. Do you so, have a quantity of the daily ukulele that's sold or, or like a guesstimate of how many copies of that have sold? Um, I don't have it off the top of my head, but, but we did surpass a million copies in print of all our books. Amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. I can't believe it myself. <laughs> I, know, I know I had talked to you when you were up in Minneapolis real quickly, and I'm sure you get the question all the time, like, is there going to be a third daily ukulele with like more of the music that the kids listen to? And I love your answer. It was sort of like, and you even say this in the book somewhere where you're kind of like, I realized somewhere, was it the 80s? That you're like, this isn't my main music. And no. you're just not inspired by it. And sometimes it's hard to make things that you're not inspired to create. No, it would be, I, I feel it would be very inauthentic for me to start <laughs> arranging, you know, Taylor Swift and, uh, you know, Lil Nas and I don't know. Like it just, it's not my, that's not my era. And so I am more than happy to let another generation, you know, tackle those, that material. So we're not going to see it a daily ukulele with Old Town Road in it. Um, I know. Or, right? At the moment. You know, we never, we, we've learned to never say never, but I would say that's as close to a, probably a never as there is. I love that. I love that. Um, do you have any final things that you'd want to, talk about or promote or any messages you I mean I know you're not a hidden person in the ukulele world you're out there in a number of ways ukulele magazines festivals interviews you name it but is there anything you'd like to promote or any messages you'd like to share with the ukulele community following especially the the publication of I guess it'd be a, a memoir right is what we'd officially call it no, I, I don't really have anything, you know, uh, other than this book, of course, I, I, I hope people will, uh, will think about getting it. It's a fun, I, I hope they're entertained by it. It is a fun, I, I think it's a fun read anyway. And, um, and I tried to fill it with enough information that you can come away um, with a sense of having lived through this unique time in the history of the instrument, you know, a lot of people may be coming to the instrument relatively recently. Like if you came to it in the last few years, you might wonder how did this, how did this instrument come to be as popular as it is right now? And it's sort of interesting to know that, uh, that it wasn't terribly <laughs> popular. Uh, it was, it was, it was really, uh, it was really unpopular for a while, uh, you know, in the, in the late eighties, early nineties. I mean, the Beatles, had a profound impact on on the ukulele. You know, 
the uke was really popular through the the Arthur Godfrey era in the 50s and then you know then it became guitar 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 and so it took quite a while for people to say you know what maybe it's time to uh you know take another look at this instrument so no i'm i'm happy to promote this uh the book and and beyond that i just wish people um all, you know first of all happy holidays and and courage as we go through this 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 difficult time uh we're all you know we're all hanging in there and and i guess maybe that we are fortunate uh uh to have to have this sweet little diversion in our lives this this instrument for many people even if it's over zoom or if you're going in wearing a mask with your uke club and there's just a handful of you and you're all socially distanced the ability to go in and sing some songs together or play together whether it's again through you know a, a zoom or or something else uh, I just feel as if more than ever, you can be grateful to have this little music box in your life um, at, at right at, at this moment. That seemed like a perfect place to stop this interview. Jim and I talked a little bit further. Just I gave some of my personal experiences with ukulele and how he had influenced me and made it possible for me to do what I'm doing today as a teacher, where I play ukulele as my main instrument, and for all the work that I do here on the Uke Stuff podcast, Uke Stuff channel, the Uke Playlongs channel, ukestuff.info. And really, again, Jim was the catalyst for all that through his work. So again, I'd like to thank him very, very much for his time. Very incredibly gracious to share a lot of time with me, and it's wonderful to be able to share that with you. I hope you have enjoyed this interview with Jim. I hope you go into 2022. This is being released on New Year's Day in 2022. I hope you go into this year with excitement and positivity and the ability to play that ukulele wherever you want it to be. Because as Jim's wife, Liz, put it, you can change the world and it really can. All right. Thanks again for listening and watching. And I'll be back soon with some more Uke stuff for you.